The problem that we're going to start out with is unstableness. No roots. We're not rooted deep. We may be rooted in a bunch of different things, but those things are shallow. It's like putting your roots in concrete. And many churches, unfortunately, are not rooted in good soil and biblical leadership. False doctrines are allowed in, running rampant in many, many churches. People love to make things in the Bible about themselves rather than God. We think that with all of our yelling and screaming that we can have man-made solutions to eternal sinful problems. And we think that we can do everything to make it all right. But I tell you this, when we are not rooted deep in God's word and his truth, we silently erode. The thing about erosion is that it occurs when you don't even know that it's occurring. It's silent. It's silent. But then all of a sudden, everything erodes. Why are so many churches sadly eroding away? It's because, it's because of a few things. Biblical disobedience and a lack of urgency to evangelize. Charles Spurgeon stated, an uh, 1800s preacher who was truly, I, I advise you to read his works. Anyways, Charles Spurgeon stated, <clears throat> It is the whole job of the church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. I think we can all go back to Matthew 28 when we think of this. You want the church to grow? We must be obedient to the word of God alone. The Bible alone. It is a command by Christ to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded of us. To love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and to love thy neighbor with true, biblical, Christ-like love. God's word is the revelation of himself to us. It's God's plan of redeeming creation through himself, through Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that you need to go out in the world and start yelling at people that they're going to hell. Well, for some, it may be true, unfortunately. But look at the people in your life right now. Look at the people you have relationships right now. Do they believe? Think about those people, your friends, your family. Do they believe? And so you can share the gospel with them. If you do not know anyone who to share this with, then take initiative, be intentional, get in the community, get involved with people, befriend people, be a friend to somebody. But pray to God for the right time to share the good news. You build this relationship with people and this trust with people. And eventually you can ask them, hmm, what do you think about death? What do you think that's after this life? And if they say, I don't want to talk about that, you've tried. But if you say, can I share with you what I believe? And they say, you know, I'd like to hear that maybe. maybe, I'm, I'm curious. There's your opportunity to share the gospel. And it is all our job as his church to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, to plant seed, to evangelize. The church is not confined to a building. The church is not just a building. The church is God's saints, Christ's bride. 
We are to be his people. It's not a business or building, but we are a living organism. We are children of God, a hospital for sinners. If you disagree with that statement, it's not me you disagree with, but the word of God. God's word is truth. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It interprets itself. Why not obey it? We must exalt Christ on the throne to be the head of this church. And he has revealed himself to us through the Bible, through his word. We must obey and we must stand firm. Ron Edmondson, he shared these five sins that silently erode the church over time. Number one is apathy. As soon as a church stops caring for the mission, the great commission to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded and to obey all that Christ has commanded. When they stop caring for the mission of the church more than any other activity, it has lost its way. The mission must come first. This is why churches need to be giving to not only themselves, but to all people for the mission, to be missional. To be clear, the mission is not programs or systems or buildings. These are means to accomplish the mission. We should care for people, have compassion on people, love people with the truth and the best that we can offer. But they are secondary to the mission. When, when the church cares more about the personal comfort of members and protecting the way that things have always been done than it does about the broken and lostness of the community around them, it has fallen into the deadly sin of apathy. Number two, pride, the root of all sin. This may be the most often repeated sin in many churches. It mostly occurs when a church has had success in any form and then simply they become comfortable. It is also dangerous when there is a lack of urgency to spread the gospel because you only care about yourself. That is not Christ-like or obedient to the word of God. When pride takes over anything that is challenged in the church, it will cause people to become defensive. People will protect or people will protect what they perceive to have built. My grandmother donated that furniture. You can't get rid of it. Many, many statements like this. If I have to remind you from scriptures how offensive pride is to God, then we will have to go through something else. There is too much biblical evidence for just this short article alone that we're looking at. Pride and conceit are at the root of all sin. Number three, disunity. We've talked about unity in the church throughout our whole series on Philippians. This unity is simply when the church is not unified. Disunity is when the church is not unified. It certainly could be around its mission, but most likely it's disunified and disunited around lesser issues of importance. He shared how he, he once had a, he witnessed a heated argument between a couple of people in the church over just toilet paper. By the way, this sin includes the dreaded passive aggression. And he said that he's seen that one way too many times. It includes talking about people rather than talking to people. It's choosing sides over non-essential issues rather than coming together for the furtherance of the gospel. That's our mission. The gospel. The mission and making disciples. Teaching them. 
to observe what Christ has commanded. Now, number four, judgmental attitudes. Jesus was constantly battling this one with the religious leaders of the day. When a church is more concerned about the sins outside the walls of the church than the ones inside it, it has fallen into the deadly plot hole of legalism. He said that he can imagine God will have a very hard time honoring that church. It dishonors the gospel for which Jesus came to share. You can judge in truth and in love with your brothers and sisters, but there needs to be a lot of prayer if you have that conversation with somebody. But the church is not to go out in the world and start judging them and roasting them with biblical morals because they do not care about your biblical morals. Number five, disobedience. Disobedience. Without faith, without trusting in God, it's impossible to please God. When a church fails to walk by faith, it is sinning against the original design God had for his people and the early church, his church. On this one, he said that he suspects that many times the church has simply quit listening to the word of God. When all the systems for doing church are in place and you do not understand why you're doing what you are doing, you fall into legalism. It's easy to stop asking for Christ's help. Is this too harsh? I hope not. He stated, trust calling sin, sin is still acceptable to the church these days. So the question becomes whether you agree church people can fall into one of these. And the greater question is whether your church has any of these sins. Ouch, that hurts. John 16, we are to expect persecution. If you're truly seeking biblical Christ, expect to be hated. Expect to be mocked. Expect to be not liked and not with the popular crowd. Scripture, there's scripture on where Jesus says that we need to be a prayerful people. Satan roams around and he roams around like a roaring lion. And the flesh wants to distract the born again redeemed self. Your sin wants to distract you. The world wants to tempt the believer to indulge in the flesh, to indulge in sin. As well as we will experience severe trials. This life is not all sunshine and rainbows. We experience hardship. John MacArthur shared a quote on how he was talking with a pastor from Russia. And that pastor from Russia said to a pastor, um, he said that it's easy to be a part of the church in Russia because at least you know where everybody stands. Everyone is united and they are willing to die, but also live for Christ. And he told John MacArthur, I don't know how you can pastor a church in America because the compromises of biblical truth are so common and subtle. Many problems we see, whether it's anxiety, family issues, marital issues, fear, doubt, vengeance, sorrow. And where do we go to get fixed? We seek man-made resolutions or solutions. Satan, the flesh, and the world, they want to rip you away from Christ. So we must, as followers of Jesus, we must wage war. You cannot win a war if you do not know the enemies. 
Yet the good thing and the good news for us is we don't fight to attain our salvation. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Because Christ has earned your salvation. But also we are to pray for our enemies. Pray for those who are harsh to you. Pray for those who slander and mock you. Pray for those who hate you. Pray for those who deny the gospel and harden their hearts. We know from our series so far in um, Philippians that there were clearly signs of selfishness and pride which caused division. This is why so much of this letter is on unity. So church, I'm going to ask again, how do we have unity? Humility, thank you. Humility. Putting others ahead of yourself. Putting others' needs ahead of yourself. And we saw the ultimate act of humility with what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. Now, the foundation of this church, of the Philippian church, was rocked. Especially due with the problem that we're going to see in chapter 4 eventually between two women. But just like every church, this one in Philippi was also broken. Because broken people equals broken church because of sin. Once again, the church is not a building, but a body of Christ where two or more are gathered. As stated in Matthew 18, 20, Jesus stated, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am, or there am I in the midst of them. Now, the cost of following Christ is death. This is why I despise, matter of fact, I hate False gospels, false doctrines, because being a Christian is not just, oh, you believe in me, you give to the church, you're going to be blessed tenfold. It's not prosperity. It's not live your life, your best life now. It's not give to me and you're going to get a new car. It's not easy. You die. You die to yourself. You are to die to yourself. But your flesh, your sin does not want to let go. Your flesh wants to rule over you and exalt you on the throne compared to dying to yourself and submitting and living for Christ. We must be rooted in Christ always and building that firm foundation, that being a relationship with Jesus. 2 Peter 2.14 John MacArthur, he stated this about this, is that this is part of pastoral duty to protect the flock from false doctrine. Preaching, proclaiming of the word of God is to convict you, to challenge you to something great and proclaim to you the word of God. It is also to remind you of the biblical text. So you all and myself included, I'm in this with you, that we can stand firm and be deep rooted so we can be stable at all times. James stated this, that we need to be rooted in the gospel. So do we believe what we believe or are we full of doubt? Are we focused on the prize? We must be like-minded in this. One faith, one objective, Trusting in the good news of Christ and sharing the good news of Christ with all people. Not with just our words, but with our actions. So how do you act around people? 
Do you act differently on a Sunday morning than you do the rest of the week? What do you like behind closed doors? And I'm asking this to myself too. I'm with you in this. What do you like at restaurants after church? How do you treat people? Do you treat people with kindness? How do you treat the waiters and the waitresses? Do you leave them a good tip? How are you in the checkout line at the store? Do you moan and complain? How are you at the DMV? (laughs) Out of all the places, I think that that's, you know, one one that really, really hurts. Yeah, Walmart. (laughs) So if we are rooted deep, we're rooted deep and we have our firm foundation We develop a little thing called self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. When we see Christ, we go after Him. And He waters and produces fruits of the Spirit in your heart. And so you judge a tree by its fruit. What fruit do we have? Is it rotten? Does it smell foul? Or is it healthy and vibrant? Is it well taken care of and nourished with the living water? This was simply a reminder for us as a church to be the bride of Christ, to be the church. Do you have a firm foundation that is deeply rooted in Jesus Christ of the Bible? Our passage this morning is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, found on page 186, 187 range in the Bibles in the pews in front of you, as well as we'll have it on the screen. But I encourage you, open up the Word of God. Philippians 4. Verse 1 states, Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So, How do we stand firm? This is vital to Christ-like living. We see people swayed by the wind. We see them swaying and they're being blown around like chaff from trials and temptations and and pain and suffering. I don't know what life's about. How can we get through this life? So remember in chapter 1, verse 28 and verse 29, we see that this church, they were persecuted and they were suffering severely. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul commands them to be of the same mind. There was not only persecution, but there was also temptation. Philippians 2.14 shows that there was grumbling, division, and disputing in the middle of suffering. Chapter 2, verse 18, they were reminded to rejoice no matter their circumstances. They also delay with Judaizers who, who wanted to add works, but there were also Gentiles who looked at faith that did not want to have any obedience whatsoever. There was anxiety. There was worry. And this church was starting to erode. But Paul says what? Stand firm. The second time he states this in this letter, remember the Greek, which stekete is the verb here for stand firm. It is a military word to stand your ground Stand in your post in the midst of power no matter what. Hold your position while under attack. Stand firm. Paul also stated this in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but also, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So once again, we see the flesh, the world, Satan. We have these three things that we're fighting. We must wage war. We build this foundation. Therefore, when we are absolutely rocked in life by a storm, or maybe in your case, an earthquake, that even though if it destroys your house and everything's taken away, your possessions, everyone and everything that you love, think about Job, you can still stand after all of it. Praise be to Christ Jesus because of what he has done to earn your salvation. And what is this life, this temporary life, compared to the size of eternity? Now, we have something different from the world. And compared to just a temporary, oh, I hope it rains or I hope it's... I hope that the Chiefs win or a a little earthly hope. We have a thing called eternal hope that drives us. It motivates us to keep pressing on. A prayer that I had that that I want to share with you all this morning because I'm so spiritual. Obviously, uh, that was a joke. Um, But I do want to share what I have been wrestling with. And it is this. I am so thankful to God that he blesses his children with hopeful promises and hopeful expectations that are far more than what we deserve. Because what do we deserve? Really, we deserve hell. But he's giving to us more. More than we deserve. But something that I'm trying to pray is this. For God to work in my heart Obviously, we have the hopeful expectations of what we get to look forward to. It's like, I paid your debt. Here's a million bucks alongside it. But I want to also do this, and I'm trying to work on this in my own life, is to simply desire God for himself. To desire Jesus Christ for who he is. Not just what he gives, but for who he is. To desire him. Desire him. To idolize the giver over the gift. We as humans, we're so broken and sinful. We are so instinctively selfish due to the sinful nature, thanks Adam and Eve, that we value salvation so much for ourselves, it can become so self-centered. I want to go to heaven to be free of pain, suffering, loss, sin, etc. Which those are solid reasons that can motivate you to remind yourself of and to encourage others and yourself with. But I think really what we stand firm in is not just the gifts, but who is giving them to us. Not only the things we hope for, but who has made the hope possible. John Piper stated, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So do you enjoy Him? Do you know Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? 
Why do we do what we do on a Sunday morning? God calls his children to obedience. Why would you obey if you do not know who you are obeying? Is there any respect of who God is? Let's look deeper into who we build our foundation on so that we can stand firm no matter what circumstances that arise, whether sins or trials or whatever it may be, or a storm. This is a command from the living God by the Holy Spirit speaking through, through Paul. Now, A.W. Tozer, he stated this of the church, that we are, we can become, unfortunately, politely bored with God. Ouch. Doesn't that sting? Why are you bored of God? This is blasphemous and full of apathy. If you truly revered God, you would obey his commands compared to looking at them as just mere suggestions. This is a serious command. This is the living God, the Alpha and the Omega that we're talking about here. You are to stand firm. Why? Due to our foundation. So who is God? I want to explain to you who God is. I won't be able to do it in full because I can't fully comprehend God completely. But GodQuestions.org stated this on who is God and what we have revealed about him to us through the biblical text. Who is God? What is God? How can we know God? I want to dive into this with you. And hopefully this will encourage you all the more to seek him for himself. To seek God for who he is rather than only just for what he gives. But you get Now, who is God? The fact. The fact of God's existence is so conspicuous, both through creation and through man's conscience, that the Bible calls the atheist a fool. Psalm 14.1 states, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Accordingly, the Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. Rather, It assumes his existence from the very beginning. Genesis 1 verse 1 states, in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth and it was good. So what is the what the Bible does is reveal the nature, character and the work of God. So now who is God? The definition Thinking correctly about God is of utmost importance because a false idea about God is idolatry. In Psalm 50, 21, it states that these things that you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Now, God reproves the wicked man with this accusation. You thought I was altogether like you. Ouch. To start with, a good summary definition of God is he is the supreme being, the creator and ruler of all that is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the self-existent one who is perfect in power, goodness and wisdom. So now who is God? We're going to look at his nature. We know certain things to be true of God for one reason. In his mercy, he lowered himself by putting on flesh, Jesus Christ, to reveal his qualities, some of his qualities to us. God is spirit by nature, intangible. John 4, 24, Jesus stated, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is truth? God's word. God is one. 
three in one. But he exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, 6-17 states, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The next thing about who God is, is he is infinite. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is incomparable. 2 Samuel 7.22 Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. God is unchanging. Malachi 3, six, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God also exists everywhere. Psalm 139, 7-12. He knows everything. Psalm 147, verse 5, and Isaiah 40, 28. And He has power and authority. Ephesians chapter 1 and Revelation 19.6. Now, who is God? We're going to look at His character. Here are some of God's characteristics as revealed in the Bible. He is just, he is loving, and he is rich in mercy. As stated in Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is truthful. The classic John 14, verse 6. Jesus stated, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to Father except through me. God is holy. 1 John 1, 5. He is without sin. He is perfect. 1 John 1, verse 5 states, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him no darkness at all. God shows compassion, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, mercy and grace found in Romans 9, 15 and 5, 17. God judges sin as stated in Psalm 5 verse 5, but also offers forgiveness in Psalm 130 verse 4. What is his work? We cannot understand God apart from his works because what God does flows from who he is. Here is an abbreviated list, a little Cliff Notes list for you of God's works, past, present, and future. God created the world. He actively sustains the world. He is executing His eternal plan, which involves the redemption of man from the curse of sin and death. He draws people to himself, to Christ, which means to himself. I just repeated myself, sorry. Because Jesus is fully God, John 6, 44. He disciplines his children, Hebrews 12, 6. And he will judge the world as stated in Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15, where John states, the Apostle John, he states, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. 
And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is important. Why you must have relationship with Christ Jesus and know and trust in the gospel. Now, who is God? We're going to talk about the relationship. And the person of the Son, God became incarnate. John 1.14, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The son of God became the son of man and is therefore the bridge. Jesus is the bridge between God and man. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm reminding you of these things. Now, 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul stated to Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, that being Christ Jesus. It is only through the Son that we can have forgiveness of sins. Paul said in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. We also have reconciliation with God. John 15.15, Jesus stated, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Friends. God incarnate for those who believe in him has called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Romans 5.10, Paul said, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And eternal salvation found in 2 Timothy 2, 2 verse 10 Paul stated to Timothy, therefore, I endure everything. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. So we have many people that say, I'm willing to die for God. My question that we, I talked about with the Core 52 group is, are you willing to live for him? Are you willing to suffer for him due to how much he suffered for your eternity and for your forgiveness and reconciliation back to himself to cleanse you of your sin, to truly cleanse you white as snow, not with toilet water smearing smearing the mirror, if you remember that illustration, but no, true cleansing of sin, grace through Christ Jesus. We stand firm in the God who we know. Jesus Christ. After looking at who God is, I want to take you back through our text for this morning, which states, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand 
firm in the Christ that you know revealed to you through the word of God. David Guzik stated in verse one, he's or David Guzik, he stated this about verse one. I'm sorry. David Guzik stated this in verse one. It says, therefore, this links together what Paul wrote here with what he wrote before because of the promise of resurrection found in Philippians 3:21 the Philippians had all the more reason to stand firm in the Lord Paul stated my joy and crown Paul used the ancient Greek word for crown that described the crown given to an athlete who had run the race how can you win a race that you don't run it was a crown of achievement, a Stephanos, not the crown that was given to a king, a diadema, which was just temporary. The Philippians, as they stand firm in the Lord, were Paul's trophy. So stand firm in the Lord, beloved. We can only stand fast and stand firm when we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Any other place is not secure and surely will erode. On Christ, the solid rock you stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. So I want to ask all of you, did Christ Jesus stand firm for you? Did he stand firm? Did he trust in God the Father, even though the crucifixion and the torture was coming? He was without sin. He did not waver. He is the model. He never violated God. He never sinned. He was persecuted, hated, and tempted, and tortured, but without sin. As in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ stood firm, therefore we must stand firm. We are to be like Christ. And I know this is a difficult command. I'm in this with you. Christianity is not easy. You are to seek Christ daily because He alone helps you battle those three enemies we talked about. Your flesh, your sinful desires, demons, Satan, I guess that's four. But those things... He is our helper. If we know that he is our helper, then when times of crisis occur, tragedy, pain, suffering, death, who do we run to in complete surrender? We should bow our knees to Christ. We bow our knees to him. Therefore, he helps you to stand through the storms. Jesus Christ should be at the root and the center of why you are a Christian. Jesus Christ should be the reason that we are gathered here this morning. If it's anything other than complete worship, adoration, and submission to Jesus Christ, biblical Christ, then you're worshiping, adoring, and submitting to something else, which is sin. You do not go to church solely for a free meal. You do not go to church to only be social for your reputation or to think by attending church you somehow add to your salvation. You go to church to gather with the saints and worship of who he is. You be gathered with the saints. You go to break bread 
and participate in communion and remembrance of what he's done for you. You go to praise God through songs and hymns and you go to hear the word of God proclaimed. If there is anything that you remember today from the text we look at this morning, it would be this. Know who you stand firm in. Idolize the giver instead of the gift. Idolize he who gives you hope compared to only the hopeful expectations. So who do we stand firm in, church? So get in the word of God. Soak it up. Whether it's by listening to it or reading it. Get in the word of God to know him. Therefore, if sin, temptation, persecution, or Satan's trying to get to you, or any of those things arise, that you will not erode away. But if you stand firm in Christ, not wavering by the winds of this life, but instead you're deeply rooted in the good news that Christ died for your sins, that he took the death that that we owed, and on top of that, he gave me grace, Alongside reconciliation to him and forgiveness, we also have the hopeful expectations to be with Christ forever with no more sin, no more pain, no more death, but perfection forever. And you will continue to grow in your knowledge of who he is from now forever. And I cannot wait to be home. I cannot wait to walk with Christ and to ask him so many questions and to simply rest in his arms to hug my heavenly father. And not only mercy, it's not only mercy, not just getting what you, not just not getting what you deserve, but also he has so much that he's going to give us with eternity. It's not just floating around on a cloud with a harp and a bow and arrow. The thousand year reign we get to look forward to. Our resurrected bodies that are free of sin, that are like Christ, we get to look forward to. The new heaven and the new earth, we get to look forward to. Fellowship with other believers from all time. And most importantly, we stand firm because we will get to be with him who stood firm for us. That being Christ Jesus. So if anything, today I ask you to please praise Jesus Christ for all he's done for you. Rejoice in it daily. Daily thanksgiving for who he is. And I know in life you will continue to face storms and hardships and and trials, but stand firm. I want to close with this quote. It's a quote from my friend and brother in Christ, uh, Jared. He stated, and we know, uh, he stated Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The vast scope and endless outworking of divine providence in which God draws together millions of details and circumstances to achieve his will each day is a far greater miracle than the relatively uncomplicated one-time supernatural occurrences that we usually term as miracles. Belief in God's providence is, therefore, one of the greatest exercises of faith, trusting that he is sovereign, that he is almighty, that he is in control no matter what. We can have and a major contributor to our general preparedness and peace of mind as we encounter trials and hardships. You build that firm foundation 
Joseph, the patriarch, stated his confidence and trusting in God like this. And I hope that we all, too, would have this same kind of trust in who he is no matter what. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph said, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Oswald Chambers stated, If it takes your heart to be broken, to know Christ Jesus, and to know who he really is, then thank God that your heart was broken because you know him. Until we come to a similar acceptance of God's control of everything, we will not fully realize the rich lessons he wants to teach us through trials. We stand firm during trials because they strengthen and prove your faith. And I want to read to you to close. I know we're going long, but to close, I want to read to you this, this paragraph by MacArthur in his book called The Master's Plan for the Church. It's important for us to understand the seriousness of the spiritual warfare wrought against Christ and all who belong to him. We need to take up the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm. We have to be prepared for battle. There are two elements of that armor that he's going to emphasize here, which appear in Ephesians 6.14. The belt of truth. Paul told the Ephesians to stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. He was envisioning a Roman soldier preparing for battle. If that soldier were to go into battle without a belt, his tunic would fly loosely around him. In hand-to-hand combat, a loose tunic could interfere with the soldier's moves and cause his death. It would also make him vulnerable to capture by an enemy soldier. To prevent any of that from happening, a Roman soldier put on a belt to gather his tunic tightly around his midsection. Paul equated the soldier's belt with the truth. He also associated it with a sincere commitment to self-discipline. We must be serious about being prepared for spiritual battle because it is not a trivial one. We need to be committed to walking the narrow path that God has called us to walk as stated in Matthew seven thirteen to 14, the narrow path. That isn't easy. There are little voices all along that path calling us to divert from it. Your flesh, the world, Satan. If we love pleasure and comfort more than we love God, we'll divert from his designated path of self-discipline and enter into sin. We're almost finished. The next part is the breastplate of righteousness. Two more paragraphs. A Roman soldier also wore a breastplate over his chest to protect his vital organs from arrows, spears, swords, and knives. Paul calls it the breastplate of righteousness or holiness. We need to live righteous lives, right standing with God, to obey God's law, or we'll be vulnerable in battle. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I grieve when I see undisciplined Christians. They know that they're to be obedient, but they've not fully committed to that command. In Philippians 4 verse 8, Paul says, Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in 
If anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Self-discipline is related to the mind. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks within himself, so he is. A pure, self-disciplined life comes from being saturated with the word of God. The psalmist says in 119, verse 11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. God's word is the source of discipline, and you must be committed to knowing it. Don't give in to the cries of the world that say, come over here. Give in to your pleasure. Indulge in your sin. If you preoccupy yourself with ungodly movies or other sinful activities, you are not pursuing the complete commitment God calls for. I have heard all the Christian arguments for questionable activities, but none of that rationalization persuades me, stated by John MacArthur. We're not to be walling around in the gray areas. Paul commands us in Philippians 4.8 to think about things that are good, that are eternal, not things that merely just don't seem bad. So what are you pouring into yourself? Who do you stand firm in? Stand firm. Who do we stand firm in, church? Who do we stand firm in? Amen. He alone is our eternal hope and the prize. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel. Help us to stand firm in who you are, our Redeemer, our Savior. You are our Lord, our God, our Father. You're the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all. And you have chosen us You've redeemed us through yourself. Help us to have grace on one another because of the grace that you have had on us that we are such sinners, but you have saved us and you've done the work. Help us to rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ every day. Help us to encourage and build each other up in the faith every day. Help us to be the salt and the light in the community and in the world every day. And help us to keep our eyes on you and to pursue you with everything we have because of who you are. We praise you, Christ Jesus. Come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.